The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. can be powerful and a force for great works. However, it can be tested in the most extraordinary ways and leave both men transformed in manners that they would not expect. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic and fungoid, and you are listening to Cinema Limbo. Tonight's presentation is Super Mario Bros., the 1993 science fiction adventure based on the popular video game series. And my guest is gaming journalist and comics writer Dan Whitehead, who joins me via Electric Tube. Hello, Dan. Hello, Jeremy. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Well, as, as well as a man who has watched Super Mario Brothers movie twice in a row can be. <laughs> well, what, well, what was that like? <laughs> mm, yeah, it was uh, somewhere between bad dentistry and bad seafood, I think. Yeah. It's all mouth-related things. Interesting. So what can you tell me about Super Mario Brothers? Um, so... I think let's start by talking about the games and kind of where they came from and what this film is supposed to be an adaptation of. I think that kind of makes sense. Um, so Mario is one of the most famous sort of character mascots in the world. Um, at the time this movie came out in 1993, uh, both Mario and Sonic the Hedgehog were kind of big rivals um, and were basically as well known around the world. The only thing that was more famous around the world was Mickey Mouse basically, they were these kind of characters that you could show them to anybody in any country and they would go yes we know who that is um, so they were a huge deal uh, and Mario was first introduced in Donkey Kong, in the arcade game Donkey Kong as Jump Man which was uh, a very imaginative way to describe a tiny man who jumps <laughs> and quite quickly he started being referred to as Mario in the promotional material and then by the time they did a sequel called Mario Brothers he was Mario permanently then and he was his brother Luigi was introduced in that game and lots of other sort of elements of the games that we take for granted today the pipes and the uh, the Cooper turtle creatures things like that um, and then um, 1985 Super Mario Brothers the game of that title came out on the Nintendo Entertainment System uh, and that was the first kind of scrolling uh, left to right Mario game like we obviously having grown up in the 80s I I have played Super Mario Brothers a couple of times but uh, I never had a an, a Nintendo system of my own so my knowledge of the Mario universe is all very second hand and my understanding of it is that it's a very grim industrial uh, uh fascistic world it's uh, it's very much a Blade Runner knockoff, but in a video game that's suitable for children. Um, that is what the movie would like you to believe, certainly. Um, 
the weird thing is with Mario is there isn't really a story or a universe or a all any of that kind of stuff that usually gets adapted. Um, he's he's just running through an environment and hitting monsters and then rescuing a princess. That's it. Yeah, I mean that is literally the story for pretty much every Mario game up until fairly recently. It was just yeah, you're playing it because you like the little jumping man in his dungarees. You know, you don't really care about his his backstory or anything like that. And of course, Super Mario Brothers was the first ever film based on a video game so there was no kind of template for how this kind of thing was supposed to be adapted where you've got this series where there's no there's nothing to adapt really other than the names of things um which probably explains why the movie resembles the game not even remotely um there's a couple of things in there which are kind of recognizable from the games but you could change the names of all the characters and nobody would look at it and say that's a Mario movie because um, um, there had been an animated series um, in the 80s um, and you, you kind of see how that would work because it's all very bright colours and you know wacky creatures and then you get to this movie which is absolutely not any of those things No, there are, there's, there's no colour at all and all the creatures want to eat you Pretty much, yeah. Um, it's, I mean, the reason this happened, um, basically, early 90s, video games were kind of becoming pretty big uh, because of things like the Nintendo Entertainment System, uh, which was... There'd been home games consoles before, but this was when they really started to become mass market, huge, you know, sort of huge um, success stories. And obviously lots of movie studios and producers were kind of sniffing around going we should be in on this we should be making money off this uh, and two producers uh, Roland Joffe who um, directed The Killing Fields um, The Mission, things like that and um, Jake Ebert who did Chariots of Fire not two people you would think would be going out of their way to make a Mario Brothers movie but they saw the potential in games as a source for movie stories uh, and they, they managed to get Nintendo to give them the rights, well, they bought the rights to Super Mario Brothers for reportedly half a million dollars and left Nintendo with all the merchandising rights, which is how they were able to get it relatively cheaply. But, you know, these were not guys who made bright, cheerful kids' movies. They were, you know, serious drama film producers and directors. And they, they went through a whole uh, sort of list of potential directors um, so uh, Harold Ramis was uh, approached to write and direct it, he turned them down Danny DeVito was approached to star and direct it, he turned them down um, and eventually they, they ended up going with uh, Annabel Jankel and Rocky Morton who at that time were best known for Max Headroom uh, they had done the original shorts um, Max Headroom skits on Channel 4 and they directed the TV movie uh, for Max Headroom, also for Channel 4, uh, which was this kind of dystopian, cyberpunk, futuristic thing. Um, so you've got these two sort of directors, uh, husband and wife, whose only experience was really making this sort of cyberpunk TV movie. They had directed a film already, though, hadn't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, you know, they weren't like newcomers, but certainly this was this was a huge sort of leap in budget and scale. Yes. Um, and th- their idea was that they didn't want to make a kids' movie. 
they wanted to make a film that would kind of appeal to the parents, that would show that, hey, video games can be serious and they can tackle issues. Um, and they were looking at sort of um, inspiration like Tim Burton's Batman, uh, Blade Runner certainly, um, and they wanted to make a, a Mario Brothers movie that was kind of about a bit political, a bit about the environment. Um, but that did not necessarily gel with what the producers and the distributors and the investors were expecting because they had seen the Super Mario games and it, that is not what they are. So pretty much right from the start, there was this big split between what the directors wanted to make and what they thought they were making and what the money people were expecting. Um, so the, the production of this movie was just a nightmare, apparently. It's, it's one of the sort of famous just horror stories of how everything on a movie can go wrong um, because nobody was on the same page. Everybody was trying to make a completely different movie at the same time. Um, and the result was just a mess, really. I watched this film for the first time when I was at boarding school. It was our, so we had a regular Sunday night movie, mm. and we had this was uh, our film one week, and the level of disappointment in the room after it finished was palpable. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. Um, I've I've seen it a couple of times since then. I've I've looked at the BBC's genome listings, and it seems to have aired around Christmas several times. Um, its TV premiere was actually on Christmas Eve, nineteen ninety six. Wow! Um, and watching it again, um, I was struck by how a lot of work's gone into it. This isn't something that seems to have been done by half measures at any point. Everyone seems to have made an effort everyone is earning their paycheck they're just doing it the wrong way basically yeah i mean it was it was a very expensive movie at the time um the reported budget was like 50 million which you know this was a few years after terminator 2 made headlines for being the first 100 million dollar movie so 50 million was still you know a, a large amount of money to spend on a film um, and yeah, I mean, it, they weren't. This this isn't the kind of movie where they were just like, oh, I'll just make anything and throw it out there, you know. Um, Jankel and Morton, the directors, were determined to make this big sci-fi action adventure that was, you know, serious. You know, that yeah, like you say, that you know, the special effects were fairly cutting edge. It was it was one of the first movies to um, really use. Uh, I think um, one of the one of the main CG animation packages that everybody uses now was first used on Super Mario Brothers. Um, you know, there's the practical special effects, the animatronics are all really good. Um, it's, yeah, it, it was not done by half measures. It's just, like you say, lots of people were working very hard, but they were all making a completely different movie to what everybody else was doing. Yeah. Literally none of it weaves together. Um, it's. I mean, it's. It's had. Let me just count them up. One, two, three, <laughs> four, five, six, seven, eight screenwriters at least. Oh, good God! Had their hands on this. First person who was asked to write the script was um, Barry Morrow, who wrote Rain Man. Um, and apparently, his script was basically Rain Man, but with Mario and Luigi. So, so which out of Mario and Luigi was going to be autistic? 
uh, Luigi was going to be the uh, Dustin Hoffman kind of guy by the sound. Right. And on set, or in the production offices or whatever it was, um, the, the joke was that that script became known as Drain Man. <laughs> <laughs> Mario and Luigi are plumbers. But it was so similar that that was, people just looked at it and you've literally just <laughs> copy-pasted the names. Um, and then it went through about four other screenwriters, um, Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet, the British sitcom writers in Porridge and all those kind of things, likely lads. Uh, oh, Bolam and Buse as Mario and Luigi, that would be perfect. Yeah, and they were quite famous for doing this to Hollywood movies. You know, they were brought in because they thought, you know, oh, you know British comedy is very clever and, you know, they, uh, they kind of became the go-to guys in the 90s for, like, coming in and making the comedy and characters in action movies sing a little bit. I know um, Sean Connery insisted they were brought in to rewrite his stuff for The Rock. They also uh, rewrote some of Never Say Never Again and reused one of their jokes from Porridge. <laughs> well, why not? <laughs> the old, uh, I'd like you to fill this flask, what, from here? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was lots of hands on the screenplay. Um, and then the producers asked Ed Solomon, who had done Bill and Ted, um, to do another rewrite because they were worried it was getting too dark. You know, they 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 thought they wanted a kids movie that they could sell toys and stuff, and they thought it was getting too far away from that. So they brought Ed Solomon in to make it funnier, make it more comic booky. Uh, they didn't tell the directors that they were doing this, and so they're about to start filming. They've storyboarded everything, they've planned all the shots, and the producers come in with a new script, which basically changes everything. Um, and that the the whole movie basically got started with that was where. That was the first day of shooting, was the director going outside and setting fire to his storyboards because they were now useless. So they ended up, the film was basically Frankenstein together from about, you know, eight different screenplay drafts and they just took the bits that they liked out of each one and crudely welded them all together. Uh, well, it shows. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, not, not to spoil the end of this podcast, but this film is really not very good. It is, it is, it's... You can usually find things that are good in most movies, I think, but this one, it's a real struggle. It's one of those movies that's just... It was ill-conceived from the start. It's one of those things where nobody nobody sat down and went, this is the film we're making. It was just lots of, hey, let's try this, no, let's do that, and they just went all over the place. Well, I mean, I would go back to what I said before about the, the visual effects. Even today, they, they stand up reasonably well the the digital effects don't look as bad as they might Mm. the acting is generally at least fine yeah Um, i mean bob hoskins i I recall saying that this is literally the worst thing he's ever done yes yeah acting or otherwise and he's he's not phoning it in he's making an effort all the way through to 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 give the movie a, a center and some heart yeah there's a scene where um He's, they're in some kind of nightclub because obviously you think Mario Brothers, you think nightclubs. Um, and he's he's dancing with a, a character called Bertha, who's this kind of stereotypical big black lady. Um, and it's it's one of these bits in the sort of interminable second act where it's just lots of running around and going to places because they're chasing a magic crystal, and none of it really matters. But there's this scene where he dances with this woman to try and get the bit of crystal. And he's he's brilliant. He's so he's charming and he's funny, and 
you know, he didn't need to do that for this scene, but it's one of those bits you're just watching it going, oh, that, you know, why? Why is Bob Hoskins doing this? Because that's a lovely bit of character performance in this just morass of running around and screaming and jumping up and down. and Because I'm, I'm sure that at least 80% of this script is just characters shouting, let's go, look out, and other similar Describing what happened in the previous three scenes. Yeah, I mean, I suppose we should talk a bit about the the story, and I'm, I'm doing air quotes around story. Well, I thought I thought it was interesting that the film starts with the actual original theme from the game. Yeah, just and as I thought, yeah, and say this is not what you're going to get. This this is the last time you'll hear any shred of Super Mario Brothers. Yeah, and then we get this weird sort of crude computer animated bit about dinosaurs. Narrated by Homer Simpson. I got confused for some reason when I, before I started watching it. I thought it was going to be Charlton Heston, <laughs> and I think I think that's Armageddon is Charlton Heston and narrating about asteroids and things. Yeah, although Super Mario Brothers and Planet of the Apes are kind of about the same thing, I guess. Um, so yeah, Dan Castellaneta, whose name is spelt wrong in the credits. That's oh, that's how much attention to detail went into this movie. Um, he kind of narrates this animated intro about how the meteor that killed all the dinosaurs didn't actually kill them it created a parallel universe where dinosaurs evolved into humanoid creatures um, and then we find out that this um, the queen of this world called Dino Hatton or whatever it is um, she, she escapes into our world by using a fragment of the meteor and then she abandons her daughter in an orphanage and the evil king of this world who's played by Dennis Hopper um, he tries to stop her they both get crushed in a cave-in and basically there's a parallel universe where humanoid dinosaur creatures exist and Dennis Hopper as the villain wants to reunite the two worlds so he can rule them for some reason I mean he seems to be doing well at ruling the world he has Oh, because he's bad. Yeah, but it's not sure, I'm not sure what he gains by <laughs> combining two realities and having both of them. Because he seems to hate our world, so it's not clear what his, his goal is, really, other than... I think, I think he's after the resources, because we, um, we see a globe of um, the parallel Earth, mm. and there's one city, and the rest of it's desert. Ah, yes. And I think that the idea is that they've used up all the resources all over the rest of the world, so he wants to merge our, with our world and use up all of ours. What they're using them for is another matter. Mm. Um, making more dodging police cars, perhaps? <laughs> or um, uh, mud for him to bathe in, for, to make jokes about? Maybe. Tyr- Tyrannosaurs famously loving mud. Just lots of lots of steam pipes i guess yeah and before i forget that's the thing that i the the real core of the film that completely baffled me what is his fucking problem with plumbers <laughs> yeah they, they talk they talk about plumbers as though they are escaped murderers they're banned in his world aren't they but why because mario and luigi are plumbers so when they get there they need to be outlaws for some reason, it's that that is one of the many, 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 many dangling threads that is not remotely tied to anything. 
it's just we need this thing to happen so we're just going to have everybody say that thing happens i did also enjoy how with thanks to the very lengthy opening scene with all the narration all the setup and everything all of that's laid out right at the start so we don't have to worry about any mystery Mm. or characters of discovering things as they go and and learning about things that there's the same rate that the audience does no. any kind of sort of suspense we don't need to bother with any of that it's fine yeah i mean to be fair it's still pretty confusing when mario and luigi finally cross over into the parallel dimension um just trying to follow why they're there and what the hell's going on so i guess just having that little bit of knowledge that okay this is the dinosaur dimension you know it's a little rock for us to cling to that we okay we know what's going on there at least I also find it interesting that um, after a huge egg is left at an orphanage and a baby hatches out of it, the nuns don't immediately freak out and destroy it. <laughs> yeah, and, and then yeah, that, that, that egg then grows into Samantha Mathis, who becomes an archaeologist. And again, yes. nobody mentions her weird egg-based childhood. So we jump forward to the present day. And the Mario brothers are a couple of plumbers in Brooklyn, and they're going broke. Yeah. And um, because of the mafia, another. Beca- because of the mafia. Red, yeah. Because there's this character who's sort of half John Gotti and half Donald Trump, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Well, maybe he's the guy who runs Pimlico Plumbers. But yeah, there's the the big opening to the film is um, Mario and Luigi racing to fix a dishwasher, one dishwasher, and they get there to find out that Scapelli, this mafia guy's plumbing company, has got there before them. And it's like, is is the plumbing industry in New York that bad that rival plumbing firms are literally racing to fix a dishwasher? Yeah, it's like ambulances. And it's but how did is are people just ringing up five different plumbers and giving the job to whoever gets there first? It's it's very odd, but it's it's all needed to kind of set up. Mario is the kind of pragmatic, pragmatic older brother, and Luigi is this kind of dreamer guy whose whole thing is he's, he watches sort of junk conspiracy shows on TV and he he believes in parallel dimensions conveniently. Um, and he believes that, you know, if you just trust in the universe, it'll take you to where you need to be. All these things that kind of vaguely pay off later as an excuse to why we don't actually need to understand how people got to where they're going. It's just, if you run around long enough, you'll end up where you're supposed to be. Um, Whereas, as you say, Mario is much more pragmatic and he always talks about trusting in your tools. Yeah. And 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 it's more in him, it's more a case of uh, learn skills and use the skills and and um, being able to take care of yourself mm. and having having sort of kind of practical problem solving ability yeah none of which actually influences the story or the plot or character growth or anything like that it's just things for them to say before the running around starts really there's no there needs to be um, sort of Luigi becoming more uh, prepared to sort of use these tools and think more practically because Mario becomes more uh, open to mm. forces of the universe, but Luigi just doesn't change at all. No, no. But, you know, to be fair, Mario has found himself in a weird mushroom-based dinosaur dimension, so his, you know, his worldview takes quite a beating. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's challenged a bit more than Luigi, who's just like, yeah, that's fine, I expected that. 
Yeah, he takes to this whole parallel universe thing worryingly quickly. He does, doesn't he? He's been watching it's, it on TV, you see. It's uh, all there. That's maybe a, a leftover of earlier drafts where he was mentally different. Well, I mean, it's, they have him watching a TV show about parallel dimensions, so when he turns up in a parallel dimension, he's like, yeah, this is fine. You know, that's the level of exposition the film manages. It's, you know, he's fine with this because we watched him watching a TV show about it. Blimey. It's lucky he wasn't watching, I don't know, something something humorous <laughs> with a joke at the end. Yeah. So, yeah, and then basically Mario and Luigi um, are sort of drawn into this parallel world to chase Daisy, the princess, who they don't know is a princess, they just think she's some woman um, that Luigi falls in love with, obviously. And they follow her and she gets kidnapped by um, King Cooper's dim-witted henchmen and they follow her by jumping through a rock wall into this parallel dimension and at that point the kind of production design goes insane and the plot just vanishes um that's when it just really starts with the whole and it's it's kind of got a lingering kind of 80s hangover feel to it in the sense that it's it's one of those movies where it's just just second act just run around chasing the MacGuffin have some chases have some wacky jokes doesn't really need to be anything stringing it all together it's just a bunch of stuff there's the it's a lot of antics yes yeah lots of lots of falling over lots of fights but there's no real reason behind any of it other than we need to get a thing where is the thing this person knows we'll go and chase after them well there's um there's a bit of setup where the two idiot cousins have already kidnapped a bunch of women from Brooklyn yeah. because they are incapable of following even the, the simplest of instructions. Yeah, and because they're they're kind of dinosaurs who have been they've they've grown into human form, um, but they're not particularly bright, um, and they're played by um, Richard Edson, the great. Sort of character actor who's in loads of like early Jim Jarmusch movies, uh, and Fisher Stevens, Short Circuit, and things like that. Um, and is now uh, an acclaimed documentarian, I believe. Yeah, uh, and Richard Edson uh, was the original drummer for Sonic Youth. Oh, yeah, I found that out today. I was I was quite quite excited by that, uh, which is bizarre. But yeah, they're they're kind of I guess one of the bright spots. Um, their characters are kind of unbearable, but they're the only ones who seem to get what the tone should be, I think. Um, they're, they're good at playing sort of the goofy henchman in a children's comedy. Exactly, yeah. they they kind of the ones who feel closest to the, the children's movie that it, one version of this film might have turned out to be. And that's probably because um, they basically just made up all their scenes. Oh, <laughs> They, apparently this is what um, Richard Edson has said when he's been interviewed about the movie was that the the whole production was such a mess nobody knew which script they were using or when um, so on their very first day he and Fisher Stevens basically just said this, this script's terrible shall we just make up our dialogue for this scene um, it's, the, it's one of the scenes where they're in a car trying to um, find out where Daisy is in Brooklyn and they basically just made it up and either nobody noticed or people quite liked what they did. And from that point on, they basically just improv all their stuff. 
So if their stuff feels a bit looser and a bit funnier and a bit like it's got some heart behind it, it's probably because they were just going, hey, let's just have a laugh. <laughs> so, yeah. Do they, um, do they kidnap Mario's girlfriend as well? They do eventually, yeah. Although I'm not even sure they give her a name. Isn't it Vanessa? Possibly. Let me have a look. She's, she really is just in there. There's a... She's really there so that, so that she and Mario can go on a double date with Luigi and Daisy. Yeah, and also because, obviously, in the games, it's Mario who goes out with the princess. And yeah, that's a good point. They've obviously gone, well, we can't have Bob Hoskins chasing after 20-year-old women. That's just going to look weird. Um, so we'll get John Leguizamo to do it. Um, and therefore, we should probably give Mario a girlfriend as well, but don't give her anything to do. <laughs> <laughs> or a name or, or anything like that. But yeah, she does get kidnapped as well. Um, and again, this whole idea that there's a, a harem of kidnapped Brooklyn women never really comes to anything, never really pays off. It's just more people to kind of run around at the end of the movie. Just looking through my notes, trying to decipher anything that might have happened in this film. <laughs> Lots of things happen. They're just not generally connected to the other things that happen. They, uh, the scene where they go through the rock. I mean, firstly, you have Mario chasing around the tunnels, saying, "Oh, I, I know the, I know how echoes work. I know which tunnel they're down because he's a plumber and he's a, therefore a tube expert." That's yeah, it's exactly how plumbing works. Yeah, yeah, because they're always like big enough to run around in and shout down. Yeah, I mean, the whole reason they're dragged into this is because Daisy comes to find Luigi because she knows he's a plumber and Scapelli's henchmen are trying to flood tunnels where she's found dinosaur bones but then all Luigi does is he gets there and he, he turns the one wheel that's there and you think, didn't really need a plumber for that do you? You could have worked that out for yourself really, there is literally one one Oh yeah, but it, it's only simple when you know though <laughs> Yeah so that's mm, that's that's the the level of of plotting. But uh, she gets grabbed and then um, dragged through a crazy porthole. Mm. And um, after a bit of debate, Mario and Luigi follow, go through a space tube, yes, which which Mario loves because it's another tube. And uh, they they come out in the busy city and they think they're in the Bronx. Which, to be fair. It- it does look quite a bit like the Bronx. It's only weird stuff like goopy snot fungus everywhere that kind of makes it look... Maybe that isn't magic. That probably is, actually, like New York in the 90s. So. <laughs> it's like Deptford now. Yeah, but, um, yeah, I mean, the, it, we keep comparing it to Blade Runner, and that's because the guy who did the production design for this movie worked on Blade Runner. So it it is literally... Here is a kind of Fisher-Price version of Blade Runner. Yeah, uh, it says here already, Merge World Steel Resources. So everything is laid out very, very early on. Mm. And then there's a little old lady comes up to them asking if they need help. And um, it turns out that she steals the rock from them and it gets thrown into traffic and there's all kind of jumping antics. And then a busker gets arrested. Yeah, the busker is supposed to be the character Toad. Um, he's the little mushroom guy who runs around he's the mushroom guy who's probably best known now for being compared to Donald Trump's penis by Stormy Daniels um, oh yeah 
Um, and yeah, but that's who this guy is supposed to be. He's, he's, a, he's a busker, a human busker, not a toadstool guy. And then later on, um, King Cooper devolves him using his, his the, the weapon that he uses throughout the film, which is a thing that can either evolve creatures or devolve them back into previous life forms. And he turns him into a, into a Goomba, which is what he calls his weird sort of giant body pinhead minions. Uh, so at no point does the character Toad actually do anything resembling the character Toad in the games or look like him or anything like that. It's literally no reason to have him in there other than to have... He's not even from the same kingdom because he is a mushroom in the game and a dinosaur in the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He might as well like, be a bacteria. It is, and you you kind of think he's being set up as the... You know the kind of um, Joe Pesci in Lethal Weapon Three kind of character, um, but he's not. He, he almost immediately gets turned into a mute dinosaur creature with a tiny head and a harmonica. Yeah, that that so you can tell which one is him. So that at some point in the, later in the film, when he helps them out, you go, "Oh, that was that was him." And then, then at the end of the movie, they don't turn him back. No. <laughs> Again. One of many, 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 many threads that goes unconnected to anything else. It is an appropriate punishment for a busker. <laughs> I think busking and plumbing are both things that are banned in this world. And yet they both happen in the tube. Oh, that's true. Danielle. Is that her name? That's the name of um, Mario's girlfriend, because um, Daisy gets thrown into the same cell as her. Mm. Uh, the the br- the brothers are arrested and they go through a bit of three stooges as uh, like Rain Man they go through, <laughs> no, no not three stooges more Abbott and Costello yeah where trying to explain what their names are yes well this is this has been a kind of um, a source of much debate over the years is ever since they did the first Mario Brothers game the first game to introduce Luigi back in the early eighties. Is the question is well, hang about. Is that mean Mario's name is Mario Mario, because they're called the Mario Brothers, which implies that's their surname. Uh, and in the film, they take that as yes, he is called Mario Mario, and Luigi is called Luigi Mario. Um, but Nintendo, over the years, has kind of gone backwards and forwards on whether or not that's true or not. It's one of those things that literally does not matter. You know, as as the Earth spirals into fiery oblivion, this is a weird thing to be. <laughs> it is one of those things that people get hung up on. Is you know, if they're called the Mario Brothers, are they literally called Mario Mario? And apparently, the latest official word from Nintendo is that yes, that is his official name. He is Mario Mario. Has he ever been given an alternative last name? No, no. He has had several girlfriends in the game. In the in the um, in the game, she's called Princess Peach. Um, but then in the Super Super Mario Brothers 2, which is a kind of weird, doesn't quite fit in, in a kind of... It's a bit like sort of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, where it's kind of like that. That feels like it's from a, the wrong series. Um, she's called Princess Daisy in that one. And then they hastily changed it back to Princess Peach for all the other games after that. And then... Eventually, Nintendo brought back Princess Daisy and went, oh, yes, no, she was a different character. Um, but they've never actually addressed why Mario was with her for one game. Um, it's just, you know, best to, best to leave his, uh, his 
porn star plumbing past. <laughs> been swapping partners and things cavalier fashion. See, this is this is the the the, the universe of the games that they should have turned into the movie. Well, you'd think, wouldn't you? There's, there's yeah, been a romance there. Yeah, get Rennie Harlan to direct. Fantastic. I guess they went with Daisy in the film because it's it's a more plausible name for someone than Peach. Yeah. And you couldn't really have that as her last name, could you? Yeah, but the same is true of Dennis Hopper's character, who's called King Cooper in the film, but in the games he's generally called Bowser. I assumed that Bowser was his name in the English language version of the game, and that in the Japanese versions he's called Cooper. It's, I think, I may be wrong on this, but I think it was the animated series that ah. called him King Cooper. Um, and then it kind of became one of those interchangeable things where it's like he's he's Bowser officially in the games, but King Cooper is an acceptable other name. It's kind of like um, in Sonic the Hedgehog, the villain is either Dr. Robotnik or Eggman, depending on which translation you're playing. But um, yeah, the, the King Cooper name is not widely used. I think it's only really in the film and the animated series that that was ever a, ever a thing. But I think they just realised that having a, a villain called Bowser would have been a bit weird because it makes him just sound like a dog. So they changed it to Cooper, mm. just like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then they cast Dennis Hopper, who, by all accounts, had an absolutely miserable time playing this character. This, I think, was... I think this was around the time that Dennis Hopper was making a proper comeback. Mm. In, the, in the early 90s, he was... After sort of a decade of living in some kind of drug cloud, yeah, um, returning to mainstream filmmaking because he, I think he directed Colours a couple of years earlier. He did, yeah, and that was nineteen ninety, I think, and then he right, Seed the year after. Um, Previously covered on this show, um, and yes, and he, <laughs> I recall rehearing that um, he took the he took Super Mario Brothers because. Um, it would be a well-paying job and he wanted to make sure his children had shoes to which his son replied Dad, I don't need shoes that badly (laughs) I'd love to think that was true it feels like it was a a, a anecdote dreamed up for uh, chat shows and things but yeah he was was not happy a happy bunny, a happy hopper on this film Um, he's got this kind of weird hairstyle with the kind of gelled hair ridges, kind of like Johnny Rotten style um, and you know he's, he's, he was a serious you know Palo Brando and you know James Dean and all that, you know he was very into the serious method acting and stuff like that and here he was not just on a fairly terrible blockbuster nonsense project but one that was being made in the worst possible way with just no script and directors and producers who had completely different visions so for him it must have been pretty much the worst possible combination of all the things he didn't want to be doing at that time particularly since he himself had been a director mm. oh yeah I mean there's, there's stories of him just absolutely going ballistic at the uh, the directors uh, just screaming at them for hours and hours and hours because they would, they would change his dialogue before he was due to start shooting and even though the dialogue was terrible before and terrible after, he was he would just berate them and berate them and berate them. Um, and there's a there's a story about how he, he did that for like hours and hours and hours and hours, and then eventually they said, "Look, what 
what do you need us to do to calm you down so we can carry on filming? And he went, let's just film it. And he just, they went ahead and just filmed the scene exactly how he'd been, exactly how it had been handed to him four hours before. (laughs) (laughs) Set him off on a four hour argument and then he just shot it anyway. So yeah, and and, um, Bob Hoskins was, was not a happy fellow either. Um, there's, there's stories of the, the rest of the cast again Richard Edson in one of his many interviews about the film has said that they were basically being paid you know pretty handsomely even like you know the supporting cast were getting paid more than they'd be getting on other films and it was one of those films where there would be days where literally nothing would get shot so they spent a lot of time just hanging around drinking and, and smoking weed um, and Bob Hoskins overheard them saying this and was like, why didn't you tell me you were doing this? I've been sat up in my rented mansion all by myself for weeks. <laughs> really terrible when I could have been hanging out with you guys and getting stoned. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was not a happy experience for many people, I don't think. And it, it, that kind of comes across, really. There's a, a scene shortly after the, uh, the whole name palaver where they're having their mugshots taken. Mm-hmm. And it's set up as though they're going to be executed because all the gun, all the cameras are shaped like guns. <laughs> yeah. And that's a that's a funny scene where it turns out that they're not going to be horribly murdered. <laughs> there's there's a there's a there's a lot of that stuff where it just feels like somebody went, "Hey, what what if this happened?" And they went, "Yeah, okay, whatever. Let's just film something, please." Um, the, there are some guns in the game, um, the, the Devo guns, as I believe they're called, the, the guns that kind of devolve people back to, uh, well, apes in our, say, in our case. And those guns are the uh, Nintendo Super Scope guns that you could actually use at home on your Nintendo. Oh, yes, I remember. And they kind of got some of those and, and painted them so they looked like actual guns for the movie. Um, it's not quite as bad a piece of product placement as the Nintendo Power Glove in the wizard oh it's so bad <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh but it's it's kind of up there that was that's about the only the only point where you can actually see nintendo had anything to do with this movie because that's that's the weird thing is nintendo these days is so protective of its properties and of mario particularly you know of, of exactly what mario is and it's it's like disney is with mickey mouse it's like no you're not having mickey do that that is not a Mickey thing. Nintendo is like that about Mario now. But at the time when this was being made, it was the first video game movie. Nobody really knew what they were doing. So it really does seem like Nintendo just went, hey, okay, <laughs> go ahead and, and make this weird, grungy sci fi movie about our cheerful, heroic plumber. Um, and that, that, that literally would not happen today. Um, well, I, th- I think this is why. Because they've seen what happens when they let people who don't know what they're doing mess around with their IP and the result is this movie yeah but then weirdly um, you could almost argue that the problem with a lot of video game movies these days is that the games companies have too much control over what's done with their games and they don't get changed enough and end up being kind of just inert and boring on the screen because you take away the gameplay the bit that's fun that you like to do yourself and are you left with these stories that are not particularly great you know so stuff like i know um ubisoft the publisher of assassin's creed was heavily involved in the assassin's creed movie which 
nobody remembers. Which, which died on its arse. Like a couple of years later, nobody remembers that film exists. Um, the Tomb Raider movie, the recent one, again, that was almost literally... Oh, God, that was terrible. Yeah, and, and the Halo movie, which never happened. Um, Alex Garland that... was paid, like, a million dollars to write the script for that. And he, he basically turned in a script that was... Uh, a transcription of the first video game because Bungie, the company that made it, were so strict about not adding or changing anything that all they could really do was go, okay, let's make a film that is exactly like what happens in the game. Because the, the lead character is called Master Chief, he wears a helmet, you never see his face, which is kind of a problem in a movie where you need the hero to at least have some kind of relatable characteristics. Does he talk? He talks, yeah, not much. He's, he's not. Oh well, that, then he's Judge Dredd. Then you can you can work with that. And Alex Garland made the Judge Dredd film, so he's got form for this sort of thing. Yeah, but Judge Dredd, at least you can see his mouth. I mean, Master Chief it literally looks like he's wearing a BMX helmet, There's, uh, <laughs> like a crash helmet, and he he has no Judge Dredd has character. You know, he has a personality. He has a worldview. Master Chief is basically just a, a floating gun. He's, that, that is, right. That's the problem with with the companies these days saying you cannot add or change anything because now you end up with these games. And the reason the Halo movie never got made was because they were asking so much money to make it. None of the studios wanted to put that much money behind a, a script that was basically just you might as well watch someone playing the game on YouTube. Um, you know, there was there was no there was nothing to it really. Um, so there's this kind of weird extremes now where the Super Mario Brothers movie changes everything and is a complete mess and now we have game, uh, movies that are very very faithful to the source material of games but are kind of really boring as a result they're, they're too, they're too f- narrow and focused and they won't allow any kind of expansion no and the, the whole point with a game is you play them you know the, the best part of a, the, the story of a game is not necessarily the, the scripted sequences that play out in between levels, the story of a game is what happens when you are actually playing it and it's a story that only exists for you in your head while you're doing it um, the, the mistake so many game movies make is they think they can kind of remove that aspect and just film the, the fixed story stuff and have it be the same, have it be as interesting but it's not because that stuff is just background really the exciting part is you being in the story as the main character you know because the 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 character element of the game in that sense is you yeah i mean most of these most of these characters are not necessarily overburdened with too much agency because that's what the player supplies so when you're making a film you need to you need to work on character i mean this is i think interesting to look at the way gaming seems to be going from from my point of view which is that you have some games that are a little like halo i'm thinking also things like burnout where it's you get to do this sort of thing you get to go around this environment and do whatever it is mm-hmm. or things i think we've talked about before like um the last of us and heavy rain i think was another one yeah. where they are they're much more interactive stories mm. where you are playing a specifically defined character within a story. Yeah. So it's almost in a sense like almost like a play yeah. in that you're acting out the this role and you've got a script you've got to follow but you can still think think of it as 
a performance that you're giving as this character within this context. Your job is to keep them alive between the story chunks, basically, so that when the when the next story bit happens, they're not dead. Um, exactly, you've got to, you've got to keep them alive until you run out of script. But then every time you die, it's almost like well, that that's a kind of become this like spin-off what if universe where that character died <laughs> in the first 10 minutes okay that's the end of that story obviously it's not you keep going um mario brothers is kind of from the very early days of gaming where game over meant game over you know that's it you failed you can't go any further um whereas like you say these days games are much more about keep playing until you reach the end of the script um, but then the stuff like The Last of Us, people have said, you know, oh, we should, you know, why don't they make a Last of Us movie? And it's like, well, you don't need to. Well, yeah, that, that, that's what I was thinking about. That it's it's kind of a movie already. Mm. It's but it's interactive. It requires you to become involved with the progression of the story itself. You can't just sit there passively because the, the one I assume one, if not both, of the main characters is meant to be you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, or certainly you kind of do this weird projection thing where you kind of, you're, it's, it's almost like you are an actor, you are performing that character, and maybe you change to a different character later and you perform that character as well, but there is a performative aspect to it that when you're just sat passively in a cinema watching the same things happen, it's no longer as interesting. It's, it's fine to watch James Bond on a cinema screen doing James Bond stuff because that's a movie and that's what we expect when you make it about a game we already have this this sense memory of well I've done that and it was better when I did it because I cared more because it was me yeah you know seeing some you know somebody dressed up as Lara Croft jumping across a ravine on the cinema screen okay but when it's me doing that in a game performing Lara Croft that's exciting because I might fail. I'm, I don't know what's on the other side. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a weird aspect to playing a game where you are both director and actor. And the best games kind of acknowledge that the players are taking that role and they step back and let you fill in the stuff that needs to be filled in. The games that struggle are the ones that keep stopping you and going, now, shut up, sit down and watch some story. The, the games that let you decide how you're going to play this are generally more interesting, I think. The ones that are able to merge action and exposition. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's some games where you can... Um, the, they don't stop. We call them cutscenes, where the, the game stops. Oh, yeah. You get a pre-rendered story scene. Um, you, you're increasingly getting games where that dialogue is now played in while you're playing. So like in the new Spider-Man game, for instance, they will deliver story information while you're just swinging around. Um, you know, people talking to Peter Parker on his phone thing in his, in his mask. So they can do all that without having to keep stopping you and because then you stop being Spider-Man and you start being you sitting on your chair with a controller in your hand. Um, so yeah, I mean, this has got very little to do with Super Mario Brothers, but it's, it's kind of indicative of how difficult games are to adapt. Um, Super Mario Brothers gets it all wrong in a quite spectacular way, but I still don't think any movie has really grasped how to adapt games, or even if we should adapt games. I'm not sure games are particularly good source material. I think it depends on the mat- on the material itself. I mean, uh, 
I do agree with you that the the new Tomb Raider movie was bad, but the reason I thought uh, that I thought it was a bad film was because I was so bloody bored all the way through, and because she was such a buzzkill. Mm. She's such, such a miserable, boring character to spend time with. And having watched the two Angelina Jolie films shortly afterwards, I thought, yeah, she's an interesting character because she's actually, you know, fun and charismatic and someone who is interesting to spend time with. Yeah. Even if even if those films are demonstrably terrible, there is at least, you know, an attempt to engage the audience with something interesting and exciting in the middle of it. Yeah, I, I, I will defend the Angelina Jolie two made of them as well, the first one at least. Um because they they are a good attempt to make a sort of female James Bond, Indiana Jones kind of character um, who just enjoys what they're doing and who does it because it's fun and because that's what they do. And this th- th- this stems from what they re- did with the recent Tomb Raider games where they kind of rebooted the series and Lara Croft went from being this kind of confident, cocky action hero who just does things because she's a daredevil who just loves to go exploring and get into adventures and she became this kind of like damaged young woman who must learn to survive and it's weird because male heroes don't normally get put through that kind of that kind of process you know um no it's as if women have to prove that they're capable of surviving on their own whereas with male characters it's assumed that they can already yeah you know um we just you know we just take it for granted that yes indiana jones he goes digging around in the and he fights Nazis and he does all this stuff by because he's Indiana Jones, that's what he does, you know, but nobody ever went, Oh, we should reboot Indiana Jones and we should have him as like a, a seventeen year old who's who's terrified and traumatized and haunted by the deaths of his friends and all that kind of stuff. But there are some character archetypes, there are some genres where you don't need that level of character depth, where you just no. a character who's fun and who's, you know, that kind of pulp sensibility that seems to have been lost a bit everything has to be serious and everything has to be internalised and the hero has to be tormented or driven by something other than just I'm the hero so I'm going to do cool stuff Um, and it sounds like I'm arguing in favour of like dumb shallow movies but I think there are certain kinds of stories where that is exactly the kind of hero you want and need Um, I mean I think with characters like Batman or James Bond you can kind of go one way or the other Mm. You can you can have sort of light and fluffy, or you can have more dark and introspective. But um, it really, it re- you're right; it really does depend on the the inherent elements of the character. Can you make Lara Croft as a dark, troubled young woman? Can you make that interesting and exciting without um, compromising the fact that she's supposed to be out on an adventure, so that it doesn't feel like the adventure is misplaced when it's supposed to be a, a psychological drama. Yeah, and this and the film the film fails horribly. And this is a thing that lots of games are kind of tripping up on now. Is this idea of on the one hand you've got these characters who are supposed to be realistic in terms of their emotions and their needs and their psychology and stuff, but then you've also got maybe fifty hours of gameplay that you've got to fill with action. So one of the big criticisms of the new Tomb Raider games. Um, is that they make a big deal about Lara being this sort of young, sheltered woman who is forced to become this hardened adventurer when she's stranded on this island. And they make in the game they made a big deal about the fact that when she first killed someone because she's kidnapped by pirates. And it's this big deal, she's killed someone, oh my god. But then by the end of the game she's literally murdered like 700 people. 
<laughs> and she's you how many know, animals unlocked all these sort of execution moves where she like shoots them in the face with a shotgun at close range or stabs them through the eye with an arrow and all this stuff and it's like that is quite at odds with the character journey that the story aspects of the game are selling us on and it's there's there's even a fancy pretentious term for it ludo narrative dissonance which is where the the gameplay and the story are at odds with each other they're pulling in opposite directions the story is telling you this is a serious emotional psychological tale and the gameplay is going murder 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 kill everyone oh it's Zack Snyder <laughs> well in many ways he is the kind of perfect sort of directorial avatar for that kind of story where it's like you can just kind of flip a switch and go from sad and meaningful to wanton slaughter and not get whiplash um but yeah, I mean this this is this is one of the big problems that uh, not problems, but one of the big challenges that games are trying to wrestle with at the moment, and certainly it's it's also having a knock-on effect on how those games are adapted to the big screen. Because I don't still don't think we've got a movie that is based on a game that works as a film in its own right or as an adaptation of the source material. And Super Mario Brothers is definitely not. <laughs> not. <laughs> well, there's some other details uh, of the uh, the city that we haven't touched on yet. I mean, there's fungus everywhere. Yeah. Um, which it eventually turns out is the devolved remains of the old king. Yeah, it's Lance Henriksen. Lance Henriksen, who has two lines of dialogue right at the end of the movie. Literally just gets... He kind of emerges from a snot pipe as a sort of giant blob of bogeys and it turns into Lance Henriksen and, and says something about thank goodness for the Super Mario Brothers <laughs> <laughs> there's part of you going oh Lance Henriksen this will be interesting no he's gone Okay. Um, so yeah whether he was meant to be in a sequel I don't know but it is a, a super weird sort of grace note in, a, in an already bizarre movie and there's also uh the Bobomb, mm. which is set up as being something terrifying and appalling through the movie, and then it turns out, oh, it's like a little firework, a little clockwork bomb that walks around, yeah, until it eventually, until it eventually goes off in a relatively small explosion. Uh, but it's, it also seems to go very far out of its way to explode exactly where it needed to be. It's not, it's not like you just wind it up and it goes in a straight line. It, it falls down the thing, it goes around the corner, and it goes. And eventually it's exactly the right place when it blows up. But that is one of the only elements that you can actually look at it and say, yes, I've seen those in the game. Um, because they are in the game and they look exactly like they do in the movie. That is the, the one thing that they get right. That and the colour of Bob Hoskins' dungarees. <laughs> and uh, Spike and Iggy, the two uh, kidnapping fools... Mm are evolved to make themselves more useful mm. and it changes them only in that they start using longer words it doesn't make them any more competent <laughs> yeah that is uh, again one of those things where it's something that should have changed the story well, I suppose it does change the story because they become smart enough to realise that they should be teaming up with Mario rather than following the orders of the increasingly insane King Cooper um, but mm. that that doesn't seem like something you would have to be evolved to genius level to work out, really. But yeah, that that whole the whole idea of evolving and devolving things becomes rapidly quite abstract and just becomes an excuse for some 
sort of wacky special effects tomfoolery, really. And there's also um, Yoshi the Little Dinosaur. That is so weird. That... Which is uh, a rod puppet, I believe. Mm. And yet it looks excellent. It's brilliant, yeah. And they, they went out of their way, because obviously Jurassic Park was being made at the same time, and they were very paranoid that they were going to have this dinosaur that just looked like it was a Jurassic Park ripper. So they kind of made him cuter, kind of, but he still looks like an actual dinosaur. And at one point he tries to eat um, King Cooper's girlfriend. <laughs> He's like literally gnawing on her leg, and you're thinking, well, this is... This is like having a Disney movie where Pluto the dog is trying to eat somebody. <laughs> you know, Yoshi is, is Mario's kind of cute sort of pet animal sidekick. Uh, but here he is. He's, he's an actual baby T-Rex with, like, teeth and a carnivorous appetite. And it's... Well, it's like, it's like a dog biting someone, I suppose. It's a dog. Still, he's, he wants to finish her off. He, he wants to eat, <laughs> eat her. And she, that, um, I'm trying to remember what that... That woman's name is it Lena? Fiona Shaw. Yeah, she gets a really weird death. Yeah, she gets turned into a skeleton. Yeah, stuck to the wall, and it's played like a kind of comedy moment, like you know, whap whap whap. Look what happened to the crazy bad lady. But it's kind of horrific, really, for a you know what is still ostensibly a kids' movie. Um, it's it's a really quite mean spirited and horrible death, and yeah. Well, there's topped over uh, by King Cooper's demise, where he just turns into slime. He turns into a puddle. Yeah. Well, it's like the uh, T1000 in reverse. <laughs> I was thinking it was a bit more like um, Stripe in Gremlins. It's it's that kind of he, which I guess goes all the way back to the witch in the Wizard of Oz. But it's there is something uniquely sort of primally horrific about human, you know, about humanoid forms decomposing in that fashion, just melting and falling to pieces. Um, so it's always kind of weird to see it used in kids' movies because it's, I guess they kind of think, oh, it's it's not violent because it's not like the heroes are murdering them. But at the same time, it's kind of a horrible way to go and they, they always linger on it for a long time. There's a wonderful line in an episode of Doctor Who where um, it's set in Victorian times and it's all about evolution. And a policeman has come to call at this this creepy house uh, to make inquiries over all the strange goings on, and he's turned into primordial soup, <laughs> and then served in a tureen at dinner. Oh wow! And um, they say, oh, oh yes, Inspector Mackenzie, the cream of Scotland Yard. That's good. <laughs> That's very good. If a little bit sort of similar to um, Peter Jackson's bad taste were. All the aliens are eating, drinking human vomit from bowls and stuff. I've seen Bad Taste. It is the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. It's doing a 4K uh, restoration of it, you'll be pleased to hear. Pass. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Have you heard of some of the um, alternate casting that was kind of bouncing around when Super Mario Brothers was in preparation? I heard Tom Hanks as Mario. Tom Hanks as Luigi. I was Luigi. Uh, yeah, but I can't, I can't believe that because early nineties Tom Hanks was kind of transitioning into sort of prestige stuff, wasn't he? This was. Well, even so, I mean, he'd already been Oscar nominated for Big, so he was definitely leading man, not second fiddle. Yeah, and I mean, what what year was what year was Philadelphia? Because 
It was 93. Yeah, so I, I kind of find it hard to believe he was doing Philadelphia. And not, but apparently he was attached. It wasn't just rumoured. He, he was at one point attached to play Luigi, which seems bizarre. Um, Arnie, Arnold Schwarzenegger was going to play the villain at one point. He was going to have the Dennis Hopper role. Oh, that I can believe. Yeah, and he would have looked a bit more like the, the Bowser from the games, who is kind of like a big, hulking, sort of Gamera-style monster turtle so you can mm, mm. that's easier to believe arnie doing that than and we can see his performance in batman and robin well yes and just think of all the fun mushroom puns he could have come up with oh um yeah <laughs> don't uh, i'm not going to take any shiitake from you forgive my uh, friend uh. <laughs> he is a fun guy <laughs> They definitely would have done. They definitely would have done that one. You're thinking of some more, aren't you? <laughs> I'm trying not to. I'm not sure I can do the voice twice in a row. I'm not even sure I pulled it off the first time. Um, the soundtrack to this movie is is quite noteworthy. I think um, it's certainly the only movie to have Marky Mark, Roxette, and Megadeth on the album. <laughs> oh, those are my three favourites. Again, it just kind of smacks of people just going, whatever we can get, just... Who's popular? Who's popular right now? I mean, rock, were Rock set ever big in America? I mean, they did Top Gun, so that would have been... Oh, that's true. Oh, wasn't, it, wasn't that Berlin? That was Berlin, yes. What did Rock set do? They did... Um... Oh, um, which film is it must have been Love from? Is it... It's not The Bodyguard, is it? It's one of those... Um... Just going to have to put this in at the end notes. Yeah. <laughs> that song featured in the it film. It's one of those big sort of romantic comedy Mannequin Mannequin 2. <laughs> mannequin on the move. Um yeah, no that's really going to annoy me now because it's I might be able to look this up. Hang on a second. Pretty woman. Oh, of course. Yeah. Well, this, well there we are because that was obviously a giant success. And, uh, when when Super Mario Brothers finishes the, literally the first credit, huge letters is um, is the credit for Roxette's theme tune, which then kicks in. So it's it's not even directed by or Bob Hoskins. It's boom, film movie's over. Roxette, big letters. So their agent earned his earned his keep that day. Yeah, and his Krona. <laughs> well, after there's been a big car chase, the uh, car Mario and Luigi are in eventually smashes out of the city and lands in the desert, and then they spend all day walking around the desert with no food or water. Mm. But it means they don't have to shoot any city scenes in daylight. That's true. Yeah. So that saves on the, lighting. The, the city set was it's shot in one of these places that's used for loads of films. They shot um, Terminator 2 in the same um, old building in Carolina, I think it is, a big end. It's Wilmington, I think. Um, so, yeah, you'd, you'd think they would want to get as much use out of that space as you could but the desert is certainly a, a cheap alternative and that, that's one of those diversions that never really goes anywhere they kind of end up stranded in the desert and then they just go back again there doesn't yeah. seem to be any kind of big resolution to that that peril it's just we were stuck in the desert and then they meet up with um, Iggy and Spike and then they sort of end up back in the back in the city again with no real no real effort, no lessons learned. It's just, yeah, we've done that bit now. It's It serves, I think, very helpfully as um, being the point where you break the movie to put the news bulletin. <laughs> yeah, it's... Um... If you were showing this movie around the music <laughs> town. 
it's the kind of point where if you if you if, you, if you've lost interest, you can you can go now. It's not going to get any, it's not going to get any better. It's yeah, it's it's the kind of break point. By all they're going to do is they're going to go back to the city and it'll be more of the same. So yeah, and I mean my notes are almost incomprehensible. There's just a lot of running around, and getting the the shard of crystal back from Bertha, and they do a whole football play with it in the yeah. bar. And then there's lots more explaining the story. There's the running story, the running joke rather, with um, Cooper ordering a pizza, mm. which it's shaped like a joke, but it, it no. isn't one. It fills the spaces in the script where jokes would go. It's kind of like his mud bath thing. That kind of feels like there's, there should be a punchline to that. But it's just... Oh, it, mud's clean and dirty at the same yeah. time. Tumbleweed. <laughs> Again, you see, Arnie, Arnie would have killed that line. Or at least you would have gone, whatever you say, Arnie, yeah. <laughs> we don't expect your I, quips to make sense. I, <laughs> I mean, he would probably have got in one of his uh, you know, re- regular gag team, <laughs> his, his team of comedy writers he carries around, and, and punched up his dialogue to make it a bit more dastardly, but this, this is This is why it's weird that Clements and Lafrene were kind of brought into script doctorate because there's there's nothing there that even resembles any kind of joke that they would write there's not even a single witticism or sort of well phrased gag it's utterly leaden in terms of humour which is so weird because at least normally with the, with the stuff they script doctored you can kind of go ah that that line's one of theirs but in this one it's just it's kind of all lost in the in the sludge really um Fiona Shaw wants to take over uh, as well and, and um, she's planning on keeping the rock while at the same time Mario and Luigi are coming up have it, they've, Mario and Luigi have now changed into their famous outfits that they found in a locker in the basement of Cooper Tower <laughs> yeah it's, it's kind of you can see them kind of getting to this point where it's like we should probably start to make it look a bit like the game at this point we need some publicity shots of them looking like the Mario Brothers rather than just Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo uh, running around. Um, so yeah, they just they open a cupboard and find, you know, the sort of red and blue and green and blue jumpsuits um, for no real reason. It's just this is the point at which they they get their costumes. I guess it's kind of almost like a superhero movie trope, that isn't it? There's always the big scene where here's the costume you recognise and but it, that's usually earned in some way. There's some moments where you go, ah, that's how they got it. Whereas this one, it's just, it's in a cupboard. They were running around yeah. and they went, we should get changed. <laughs> we're in a real did. rush. There's all kinds of stuff going on, but we should stop and get changed. That's what we need to do. I would, I've just remembered there is another bit that I really liked, which is the bit where they're stuck in the elevator. With oh, the yes. Members, the kind of big bulky guys with the pinheads. And that's a lovely little bit of sort of physical comedy, almost sort of Marx Brothers-esque, where they start making them sway side to side in time to the elevator music until all of them are dancing. And and, they, and then they start pairing off and dancing with each other. And, it, you know, it's, it's a, a lovely little moment that, like everything else in this film, is just completely disconnected from anything else, and there's no payoff to it. But it's just that one of those little moments where you kind of go, "Oh, okay, I can." There's a little glimmer of life there. 
that feels like an Ed Solomon joke. It is it is the kind of thing you would have seen in Bill and Ted. I was going to say, yeah, you could see that happening in like uh, Bogus Journey or something like that in uh, in Heaven or something. Yeah, it's. Uh, but yeah, that's the, the the fact that moments like that are so so rare and so unique in this movie just kind of rams home just what a desperate mess the rest of it is really because in a in a competent or good movie that would just be a, a one of many moments that you went oh that's nice but in this one that's that's the highlight of the film basically that is the the uh, the stylistic and comedic highlight of the entire 90 minute experience going back to um the the Mario Luigi relationship um it's it's bungled early on when Mario is explaining the relationship between the two of them that um I've heard some people con- who are confused by it think that they're actually father and son <laughs> yeah I can see that yeah um because he says that he he raised him from when he was very young and now they're in business together and they're they're brothers but they have a sort of uh, a parental relationship and I thought this is like a gritty reboot of Only Fools and Horses. <laughs> and the thing that made it particularly um, sort of sealed it for me is that a few years ago, John Leguizamo was cast as Del Boy in an American remake of Only Fools and Horses. With uh, It was called King of Van Nuys, and it was set in Los Angeles. With um, the, I think the, the Trotters were renamed, I think, and they were, they were a Hispanic family. And it also starred Christopher Lloyd as Grandad. Oh my god! It did not get past the pilot. Wow, that's a. It's mm, an interesting concept for sure. I can imagine it working. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's one of those things where if you just if it was, if it didn't have that expectation hanging over it. It's like he's like a fast-talking, charming hustler type, always looking for an angle, always looking for a deal to make himself a millionaire. But this kind of relationship is kind of a. A trope that kind of goes way back beyond Only Fools and Horses, the kind of pragmatic older brother and the dreamer younger brother. Um, that's, I mean, I suppose Delroy's not particularly pragmatic, is he? But that kind of um, that double act dynamic is, is fairly timeless, I think. And I can definitely see why people would see Mario and Luigi as father and son in this, even despite the fact the film being called Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> I mean, the clue is in the name. In all fairness, that's, the, that's all the exposition you need on that front. I think, but yeah, I think just casting Mario. I think they had such a small pool to work from, and once Devito had turned them down, <laughs> I mean, Bob Hoskins has actually said that the only reason he got the part was because he's the right shape and he's got a moustache, <laughs> <laughs> which is you know wonderfully honest of him. But yeah, it's it's not. It's it's kind of like. Um, John Goodman playing Fred Flintstone. It's like, who who was who else was it going to be? I don't know. It's it's that thing of like, how many other people kind of fit that archetype? I guess. But, um... There was a story I heard that um, when Brian De Palma was making The Untouchables, it wasn't at first clear whether or not Robert De Niro was going to be available. So Bob Hoskins was kept on retainer to play Al Capone. And it turned out that De Niro was available and he's in the film. And Hoskins kind of thought, oh, well, never mind. And then he got a check through the post for something like $500,000 <laughs> for his time. Wow. 
And he responded by writing to Brian De Palma and said, well, thank you very much. It's very kind of you. If there are any other movies you don't want to, me to be in, <laughs> please let me know. That's classic. I like that. And they start talking to the fungus. Mm. Well, I think Luigi does because he's the kind of guy who would talk to fungus. Um, he's a bit simple. Yeah, they've kind, of, they've kind of set him up as this kind of like generic idiot, basically, who just believes anything he's told. And yeah, you can kind of... Credulous. Yes. You can kind of see how he would go, yeah, let's talk to the fungus. Because he, he starts to recognise that the fungus that is all over the city is in fact... He doesn't know it's the king. All of it is the king. Um, but he kind of realises that it's trying to help them by sort of bringing them stuff and grabbing baddies and things like that. Um, but, yeah. Well, they uh, they escape from the tower with all the women who've been kidnapped. They, they ride a mattress down a big pipe. Yes, leading to Bob Hoskins giving that immortal line, quick, jump on the Goomba mattress. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope that was on his, his uh, obituary reel at the Oscars. If it wasn't, they missed a trick, because I'm sure that's how he would want it to be remembered. <laughs> and uh, then that leads into the, the, the final battle on the streets of Dino Hatton with the uh, the brothers wearing the jumping boots, and, and Cooper's got a fireball gun, and um, they're trying to get the, the, the shard of uh, the meteorite out of the meteor so that the two worlds don't merge. And then they do merge! Mm, briefly. And uh, Goomba turns Scapelli into a monkey, and and he points at it and says, "Monkey." And at that point, you're basically making a sort of live-action 1960s Disney movie. It's kind yes. of you know, the computer war tennis shoes kind of wacky family comedies that cost about five thousand dollars to make. Um, and then the World Trade Center is destroyed. <laughs> yeah, I mean. <laughs> It's funny in retrospect. Well, yeah, it's. Uh... But uh, they pull the they pull the shard out and the, it, they unmerge and and they go back again and and yeah, then they fight and then they win. I mean, originally the the big ending to the film was supposed to take place on the Brooklyn Bridge. They had this big, you know, spectacular ending where I don't know there would have been dinosaurs on the bridge or whatever. But by that point, the directors have been sacked basically. Um, <laughs> that the producers were going to finish the film themselves um, they'd run out of money and time so they basically just went back to the city set by the looks of it and just we'll just jump around here for a bit and stick some fireballs in there and then and then just have him melt Daisy decides that she's going to stay in um, the Mushroom Kingdom now that her father's back um and so the uh, the brothers and all the uh, the various women go back to regular world. And um, there's a news report about what's going on. And oh yes, and people are already calling them the Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> that's something that makes no sense yeah, at all. I mean, who who's who has been reporting on this crazy adventure that's taking place in another dimension? <laughs> I mean, literally, as far as our world's concerned, all that happened was a mafia guy turned into a monkey somehow and a bunch of missing women turned up. I mean, if anything, the Mario Brothers should be in jail because they're clearly, <laughs> they're clearly involved in this somehow. And who's going to believe them when they say it was, a, it was Dennis Hopper as a, as a dinosaur? It's as good an explanation as any yeah. other. And then they have that little obli- obligatory kind of, oh, there might be a sequel, sort of Back to the Future rip-off where Daisy turns back up 
uh, kind of a bit like Ripley from Aliens with a flamethrower and looking all action hero-esque and says, you've got to come with me, you won't believe what's happened. And we never got to find out what happened. Well, you say that, but there is in fact a sequel in comic book form. I saw this on the internet today while I was doing my research, yeah. Um, I haven't read it because I, I didn't... Well, to be honest, the, the, the one thing that I did look up today is that you can actually read the unmade Pink Panther script Peter Sellers wrote before uh-huh. we die. Um, so I forgot... I, I, that, yeah, that was more, um, I think, worthy of my attention than a fan comic book sequel to the Super Mario Brothers film, which doesn't even look like the actors. I mean, uh, I appreciate that there are copyright issues, but no one's paying for this. You can just do draw pictures of Bob Hoskins and his ghost isn't going to come and get <laughs> well, you. That would be a sequel I would watch, actually. Isn't there a movie where... Oh, no, so there's a movie where Bob Hoskins is menaced by oh, a ghost. Oh, he's haunted by Denzel Washington, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. From Philadelphia. Yes. It all ties together. <laughs> In that, one of that kind of weird wave of... Was it late 80s, that one? Where it was that kind of... Yeah. Lots of sort of films about racism that were kind of weirdly racist themselves. Um... There was. I remember when Denzel Washington was in a comedy. Yeah. Remember when he laughed? <laughs> he still laughs now. He just does it while he's drilling people's heads as the equaliser. He's not the real equaliser. <laughs> if I was making a film of the equaliser now, I'd cast Michael Sheen. Yeah, I could see that. I th- overall, I think the Super Mario Brothers movie is passable just about although as I say it has problems with pacing, exposition and tone, that's pretty much everything (laughs) Um, it's an effort has been made in terms of the design and the look of the movie and I think, although you say that it is pulling in all different directions, there is I feel like a, a single vision in terms of what the film's supposed to look like and that I think works on its own yeah, terms. I think what I would be interested to see if I could somehow create a parallel dimension where history was different would be I want to see the film that um, Jankel and Morton wanted to make if it didn't have to be a Super Mario Brothers movie. If someone gave them the money to make a science fiction action adventure I want to see the movie they would have made rather than this one where the problems with this film are bureaucratic basically they're to do with the producers and the distributors and too many people at the top having different ideas about what the movie had to be and everyone nobody can agree I would like to see the film that Jankel and Morton would have made if it wasn't a Super Mario Bros movie if it was just go ahead and make your weird cyberpunk action adventure because the Max Headroom stuff as cheap as it is is really cool and interesting and full of great ideas and with a bigger budget, maybe not 50 million, but, you know, I, I think there is, that's, that's what you're responding to, I think, is that little kernel, that little nugget of a really interesting movie that they would have been able to make if they didn't have to keep throwing in weird half-baked references to Super Mario games and, you know, bodging together eight different scripts. So, um... You don't feel uh, as forgiving towards it as I do, I assume. Um, there's there's very little about it that I like. 
I agree there is something there at a kind of aesthetic level that shows some level of promise and unfulfilled potential. I think as as an adaptation of the Super Mario Brothers game, it's just it's a non-starter. There's no point even criticising it for being a bad ad- adaptation because it was never going to be a good adaptation. Um, Nintendo keeps talking about doing a, a proper Mario Brothers movie and... I've I've heard that they're planning on doing some sort of animated feature. I think if they do, it'll be a CG thing, yeah. Which you know might work. I'm not. I'm just. I'm not sure if the time for that has passed. There's a Sonic the Hedgehog movie coming out next year. But it's it's going to be a live action CG hybrid, and and we've got Jim Carrey as Robotnik slash Eggman, and James Marsden from X Men as a cop who follows Sonic the Hedgehog to San Francisco to help save the world, which, to be honest, sounds a lot like the idea for a Super Mario Brothers movie. It does, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, so, I don't know. Sega Sega somehow manages to make a new version of Super Mario Brothers movie with Sonic the Hedgehog almost 30 years after the fact. That'll be quite impressive. Well, as long as it adheres to the, um, the uh, fan desire for the story to end with Sonic and Tails expecting a baby together. I expect that it will be uh, very warmly received. If they can incorporate all the ideas from Sonic the Hedgehog page on DeviantArt, then that would be certainly unreleasable, but definitely interesting. <laughs> well, I'm. Uh, if they, uh, who do who do you say was directing it? The guy who did the Human Centipede. <laughs> Possibly, yes. Um, I don't trust me. Where's hats indoors? <laughs> That, that and the, the stitching mouths to rectums is the deal-breaker, I think. <laughs> yeah, but that's in the movie. I mean, hats wearing hats indoors, I think, is the greater sin than all, all, all the bum surgery in those movies. Things, yes. But then Richard Stanley, oh. who did um, Dust Devil and Hardware, he, he's a big indoor hat wearer, I believe. And... Baseball caps I'm prepared to give a pass to. It's the wide, it's the wide-brimmed fedora type that is a problem because it's usually some kind of character yeah, thing. Cowboy hats, that kind of thing. It's a bit ostentatious, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, thank you very much for uh, for watching uh, another terrible movie. <laughs> um, I hope that at some point in the future, I will be able to find a film that is good or a video game movie that's even worse than well, either of let's these. Keep hoping. <laughs> Thanks to Dan for making time for this recording. He's currently writing three comic series, Surreal Horror Hex Loader, Gothic Western Frankenstein Texas, and gaming superhero Ella Upgraded, and you can find them all at gumroad.com slash zebracomics. Cinema Limbo is now on iTunes with more than 50 episodes available, so please download, review, and subscribe. We're also on Twitter at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please do make a one-off or regular contribution to help with our running costs. However, until next time... Get those plumbers! Cinema Limbo, 
hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. Thank you.